We're in the middle of a series that uh, started when we were online. Now we're live streaming and having you here, keeping your joy, the heartfelt theology of an isolated prisoner. And if you have your Bibles, Philippians chapter 2, Philippians 2, 17 to 30. Last Sunday, we actually started on this topic, the joyful cost of building faith in others. The joyful cost of building faith in others. So it's easy to get the idea that here I am, I walk with Jesus, and my only responsibility really is to make sure that I'm growing in the faith. I want to be a good Christian. I want to be growing in the Lord. I want my faith to be growing. And that's good, but that kind of individual me and Jesus thing really doesn't fit with the whole uh, tone of the New Testament, where my responsibility is, is not to put anything in the way of your growing faith in Jesus and you to do the same with me. In other words, it's not just a me and Jesus thing. It's, it's the way we together as the body of Christ are growing in our walk with the Lord in such a way that it makes it easy for other people to grow in their relationship with the Lord. So the joyful cost of building faith in others is continued from last week, Philippians 2, 17 to 30. I hope in some way or another you have a Bible with you. If you're watching as this is streamed, get a Bible. Philippians 2, 17. Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He's in Roman prison. And he says, 2.17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you, their growth in the Lord and how they're applying the things that he wrote in the letter that we call Philippians. He wrote that letter to them. Epaphroditus took the letter, and now Paul is later on wanting to send Timothy because Timothy can go to the church and see, are they applying the things that Paul wrote in the letter? So I hope in the Lord, 19, to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have, I have no one like him who, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all, these are all the other people working with Paul, the people Paul knows, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. They, they, they all, every one of them, they seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. 22. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Am I going to be executed? What's going to happen? And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. He never did. 
I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need, because that church in Philippi had sent Epaphroditus. He got sick on the way, remember? They had sent Epaphroditus to Paul with a gift to encourage him while Paul was in prison. And now Paul's, Paul's going to send him back. I have thought it necessary, 25, to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. He almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. They couldn't reach Paul. They couldn't minister to Paul. So Paul, that's what Paul means by lacking. They sent Epaphroditus to make up for that, that lack. Now, last week, and you can see it online, we studied the first three life lessons from this passage. And here it was, the one point last week. Kingdom influence can only be found in denying self-interest. Kingdom influence can only be found in denying self-interest. So, so I must embrace this uh, countercultural principle that in terms of kingdom fruitfulness and joy, I must lose my life in order to find it as Jesus wants it found and fulfilled. Kingdom influence can only be found in denying self-interest. And here's where that principle comes from. It comes from, we looked at these verses, Philippians 2, 3 to 5. These aren't in, in uh, the notes. They don't have these, so don't, don't panic up there. Philippians 2, 3 to 5, where, where Paul writes and he says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Or, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, what would make people do that? And, you know, let's face it. We all know how, how this works. In a situation, we have, we have an opportunity, even in a pandemic like this, we have that opportunity to put other interests above ourselves. So, so we're, not, we're not fighting, you know, mask or no mask, distance or no... Though God gives us wonderful opportunities to put other people's interests ahead of our own. Okay, what would make people do that? What would make people deny their own rights, their own interests, and just say, here, what, what, what would you like? What would make you happy in this? What would make people live like that? He tells us. Look at five. Have this mind among yourselves. doesn't just say in you. That's not a good translation. Among yourself, among Cedarview Community Church. What, what would make us think like 
that because the culture around us doesn't. People protest to get what they want. What would make us think so differently? Have this mind in you among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient unto death, even death on the cross. What would make us live like that? Nobody else does. Here's what makes us live like that. We all know that if Jesus hadn't put our interests above his, we would be eternally damned right now. So the reason I'm saved, the reason you're saved, is Jesus put your interests above his. He abandoned what was rightfully his, and he said, fully on that, these people come first. And so that was the first principle last week. If you're going to follow Jesus in kingdom life, it's only going to be found in denying self-interest, putting others constantly above yourself. You want to be a Christian? That's how you have to live. So that was principle number one. Now let's consider points two and three. So if that was point number one, this is number two, okay? It is an unsafe practice to validate and measure, I'm adding that, it's an unsafe practice to validate and measure my own commitment to Jesus by the commitment level of the people you're social distancing from but sitting with here in the sanctuary. You can't measure just by them. So there's no safety in numbers. That, that my commitment to following Christ is pretty much the same as everybody else that I know in my social bubble. Paul's words in describing Timothy in this text, they are just really beautiful words. They're in verses 19 to 22. Look at them carefully. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all, and that's the important word, that all, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I, I, I read those words started studying them last week, and they, they kind of haunt me like a ghost. The, the probing caution lies in that 21st verse. They all, everyone else Paul can think of, let that land. Everyone else Paul can think of in his Christian circles, they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That's not Paul's description of the pagans. It's his description of those who were in his own line of work. So in other words, these were the people available to Paul as options 
to Timothy. These were the people who were followers of Jesus. These were the Christian people with Paul at Rome. And Paul says not one of them truly was interested in Jesus Christ. Doesn't anybody else go, wow! Yeah. Somebody listening. See, I really like that. So, so, in other words, not really caring about the interests of Christ, Paul is saying, not really caring about the interests of Christ was the normal condition. The normal state of the Christians Paul knew by name and experience. Paul knew what it was like to dwell in that kind of spiritual climate. Don't romanticize the spiritual state of the New Testament church. It was probably a lot like the church today. Something else. Notice, notice the carefully worded distinction here. To miss it is to miss the heart of Paul's argument. These other disciples, they cared about Christ. What they didn't care about were the interests of Christ. They loved Jesus. They were holding on to correct beliefs about Jesus. But they weren't very interested in what Jesus was interested in. Those are two totally different things. And listen, it explains why Christian beliefs by themselves change no one. This may be the best explanation I can think of as to why orthodox Christian beliefs might leave your heart totally unmoved and unchanged. It's the interests of Christ. These other disciples probably said they loved Jesus. They probably liked being forgiven of their sins. They probably wanted to go to heaven over hell. They probably prayed. They worshiped. They were into the routines of Christian people. They probably cared about the commandments of Jesus. They weren't committing adultery and stealing and lying. It's not that. What they, what they still didn't do, according to Paul, was care about the interests of Jesus. They weren't, they weren't as motivated about what Jesus wanted to have done as they were motivated by what they wanted to do themselves. That's, that's what it means when I say they weren't interested in the interests of Jesus. They, they didn't put the time and the work and the energy into the things Jesus gave his life for. Which, which just makes us all stop. Here we sit. Let me, let me just try and make... Let me try and make these wheels turn. What do you think Jesus is most interested in? I mean, if Jesus were alive physically, walking this earth right now, with you and with me, Jesus himself, in 2020, September, alive on the streets of Newmarket, what would he spend his money on? Is that a fair question? 
What would he give his time to? How much Netflix do you think Jesus would watch? What would he be interested in right now? And is that what interests me? I still remember, this is years ago now, years ago, having lunch with uh, missionary Stephen Challoner. And I can remember how the smile went out of his face just as he was describing the coming prospect of going back and saying goodbye again to family and heading back to Africa. And then he said, that's part of the call, he said. Most of us think of the call as serving Jesus in the things we already like to do and are doing. I've come to see the call of Jesus as it cuts across the things nearest and dearest to me. I remembered that. One of the best things that happened to me was the discovery after poring over about 26 different commentaries on this passage in Philippians. One of the great discoveries was this brilliant quote, these words from another era. About 107 years ago, Dr. Robert Rainey penned these words, and he's writing specifically about Paul's comment that none of these people shared in the interests of Christ. Okay, that, He's talking about this very sentence from that verse. And here's, here's what he said. It's a little different English, but you'll have no trouble following it. Quote, you mistake if you suppose this faulty state implied in all these people that it's a deliberate, conscious preference of their own things above the supreme beauty and worth in the things of Christ. They might honestly judge that Christ had a supreme claim on their loyalty. And they might have a purpose to adhere to Christ and Christ's cause at great cost if the cost must finally be borne. And yet, meantime, in their common life, the other principle manifested itself far too victoriously. The place which their own things held, the degree in which their life was influenced by the bearing of things on themselves, was far from occupying that subordinate place which Christ has assigned to it. Listen, the things of Jesus Christ did not rise in their minds above other interests, but were jostled and crowded and thrust aside, not denied, thrust aside by a thousand things that were their own. The money sentence is, the things of Jesus Christ did not rise in their minds above other interests. Because that's precisely what Paul is talking about. They, they looked after their own interests, not the interests. of Christ. They weren't denying the virgin birth, the incarnation, the substitutionary atonement, the resurrection, the second coming. They weren't denying any of those things. But their own interests rose above the interests of Christ. 
Point number three, what, what can we do about this? Point number three, if you long for greater devotion to Jesus, set your attention and admiration on large-hearted Christians. The text I'm looking at is Philippians 2, 28 to 30. Paul writes and says, I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. He's talking about Epaphroditus. That's, that's the him there. So receive him in the Lord with all joy. And here's the phrase. Honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. And I'm closing with this thought. If you don't admire the right people, you will come to admire the wrong people. But you will admire someone. You can't miss this truth in today's world. Most of the people in People magazine are noteworthy for partying all night without underwear. It's the kind of world we live in. Most movies parade human ignorance and grossness in a way that's just designed to make us all laugh. Most Christians couldn't name the 12 apostles. Most Christians couldn't quote the Ten Commandments. Most Christians, well, you know how it goes. Can you name, can you name 10 people, martyrs, famous martyrs for the cause of Christ? Let me urge, let me urge some kind of reform in our thinking. Let, let me plead with, oh, with youth, with young adults, though not, not exclusively them. Just find one person radically sacrificial in, in his commitment to the interests of Jesus. And if need be, leave every other friend and latch on to that person. Pick godly examples. Not just famous celebrities. Not trite people. Honoring the right people and ignoring the wrong ones, it's a huge part of an authentically worshiping mind. This is true because your devotion to God, it, it can't rise above the examples that you prize in this world. You, you can't divide your life around praising God in church and studying ungodliness in the lives of others. Your soul can't survive that kind of split for very long. Worship is not just the songs we're going to sing in church in a few minutes. Worship is finding the right people to prize and admire. Reading biographies of great saints who sacrificed all for Christ. Something has to be a counterweight to the triteness of our culture. Something has to. Paul, speaking under the influence of the Holy Spirit, said, 
most of the Christians he worked with weren't that interested in Jesus. Let that sink in. That's why Christian beliefs may not change your life. Christian beliefs alone are not the measuring stick. And, and Paul, felt, Paul felt this lack of Christ-interestedness. I know that's not a word, I just made it up. He felt that in the majority of Christians around him. They all, 21, they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. And he was aware of this disconnect in their lives. He could, he could tell, he could tell when people weren't devoted to the interests of Christ. Paul felt the loneliness in his soul. That he was with people who held orthodox beliefs, but passionless about Christ. Do you feel that? Do you feel that? It's a good thing if you do. I pray that God creates for Cedarview Community Church here in live stream. I pray that God creates some kind of holy unrest among deep thinkers today, young and old alike. Test your heart with this passage because there's more to it that meets the eye. We don't, just, we don't just believe in Jesus. Our hearts share the interests of Jesus, and that makes all the difference in the world. And everyone muffled through their masks and said, yeah, yeah. Grant this, Lord, I pray. Grant this, Lord, I pray. Grant this, Lord, I pray, that there would be deep interest in the things that interest Jesus. Loving relationships in the body of Christ. Penetrating witness to the lost. In all of these things, Father, it's, it's somehow not enough just to want to be forgiven and go to heaven. The things that burn in your heart today, let them not leave our hearts cold and detached. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.